What follows is a dialogue between myself and Toby about the life and times of Director Thomas Arlington of the NIA. These are our thoughts about his world and his efforts as we travel through space and time, through the window. From there, let's actually move on to um, some of the other cartographers. Oh, I like these next three. Yeah, exactly so. And <laughs> in particular, because on the face of it, Kaufman's account isn't necessarily humorous in and of itself, mm. but kind of the greater context of the more that we have seen of him throughout all the rest of New Century and the kind of character that we know him to be mm. can't help us from feeling a certain amount of veiled, not necessarily humor directly in his words, but like us taking some enjoyment out of the way he chooses to mm. frame and phrase things, yeah. so to speak. You can't help but smirk as you listen yeah. to him. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Sadler, Tudor, and Kaufman all provide accounts that further set the stage, even as some of them focus more on tools of the trade rather than stories that speak to their individual characteristics. The question I asked you, and I, I loved your answer to this, was how do they come across as paragons of the cartographers and the values encouraged in the handbook. Well, first of all, Greg, I cannot relate to a paragon. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I should have known that that was coming at the time, but mm. that was those are the words I used, uh, not realizing <laughs> that they could be that, that they could hoist me on my own petard, so to speak. <laughs> well, that is my role in this particular endeavor of ours, I believe. But mm. um, you feel free to hoist me on mine. Uh, anyway, I know what you meant by paragons of the cartographers because they're shown to be examples of what they wish to spread with the handbook and see in the cartographers. Kaufman imparts immutable biological or medical facts. You know, you have to follow all of this guidance or you are done. It is like that wording basically says this is not up for debate. It's simply the state of things. And like we said, you know, it's kind of presented in a humorous sort of way, like for lack of a better term for it. But I think that that also imparts a sort of a motive and express sort of goal of what Arlington is trying to strive for here, because seeing things for what they are rather than what you hope they can be is what the book is striving to encourage in its audience. And what Kaufman does with his section is a medical example of that. It's focused squarely on survival, an impression that I suspect Arlington hopes will spread to the public's view of the rest of the text. If this section shows the best medical advice for how to survive, then maybe people will take the rest of the book to have that same level of informed authority. 
I pondered for a moment here whether or not I should add a wish that more people would follow medical advice from professionals in 2021, but if I start down that road, I'm going to make all of us frustrated and sad, and this is supposed to help take us out of ourselves for a bit. Besides, we'll have plenty of opportunity to explore human stupidity in Arlington. So, moving on. And I have written some notes on the other two, but I know that this is a wall of text, so I will allow pauses between each character to let you chime in with your thoughts, because if we just went by the notes, there's an awful lot weighted towards me, so I need to make sure that you are getting just as much, if not more, say in all of this, Greg, Mm -hmm. because you have a good ability at reining in my shenanigans. I don't think I have necessarily anything to add to your assertions regarding Kaufman. I think Mm -hmm. most of what I have to think about him is is something I said as the prelude to this part of our discussion of those characters. But as we get to some of the other characters that we've listed here, I definitely have... Yeah, exactly. I definitely have some responses to follow on with. So please, go on, sir. Sure thing. So Sadler, in addition to being an example of correct and appropriate tactical response to handling a Wendigo in the wild, is one example of respectful collaboration with cartographers from all racial backgrounds, specifically Native Americans. Mm. It is shown that this man is to be considered an equal. And in fact, more than that, the I forget the character's name, um, the Native mean, American. Oh, Ascook. Ascook, yeah. So more than that, Ascook's intended method of dispatching the Wendigo is specifically pointed out as a prime example of how to best take out one of these creatures in the cleanest, quietest manner possible. Like, even if he did not succeed at it, what his intentions were was basically the most, like, sensible approach to this situation. Sadler is not necessarily above and beyond what a cartographer should be, but he is nevertheless an example of what is expected of them, and the unity and respect that his account demonstrates is essential to the handbook's message. Yeah, it's... When you talk about the unity and respect, Mm -hmm. the thing that comes across most in that account is that they have that he has trust enough in as cook as a as a person and as an ally mm-hmm. to the cartographers clearly have their own orders in regards to how to deal with their own as mm-hmm. we've seen from buckner's account right yeah but Sadler, like he, Ascook knows what he's come to, and Sadler sort of stands back and lets Ascook. He gives he he gives the scout agency mm. in determining how he is going to meet his end, mm. and then goes on to show respect to his remains in a manner that further highlights that respect, Mm. so to speak. Absolutely. It makes us like Sadler more as a person. Like, you know, Paragon or whatever aside, as opposed to some of the other stories that are present in the book, we are naturally 
we were very much inclined to like Lawton mm. uh, as a result of what his story says about himself mm. as opposed to merely being an account of what happened. Absolutely, especially because if there is a set way of going about like scout infection, then him volunteering this information in official in an official capacity is very much a like I stand by this and what I respect about him I would gladly sort of share that and my decision to like not follow protocol yeah um so, but go on go on with Samuel Tudor I really like Samuel Tudor so <laughs> Tudor has ingenuity, and that's downright encouraged in cartographers. He looks for means of improving upon the done way of things, which is central to Arlington's, and by extension the cartographer's, broader philosophy. His weapon being tied to something as personal and emotionally endearing as a tribute to his departed wife is the element of humanity that you'd want the cartographers to be presented as, and he's also quite the character, so he's good for bringing in audiences to the cartographer's side. And I mean that both in the like in the text of people hearing about these new cartographers and thinking like there's charismatic individuals like this Samuel Tudor, but for us, like the real world audience of this book, mm-hmm. I think that Cartographer's Handbook is I, I remember in uh, one of our interviews, I mentioned that if there was a video game for New Century, the instruction manual would just be a book of Cartographer's Handbook. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what you want with characters like this in stories like this is to be like, I want to be on side. I want to like fight with this kind of weapon because it has a cool story behind it. I want to like build characters like this. So if there was a Knights of the Old Republic style sort of open world Bioware game where you were just exploring as a white scarf, then interacting with NPCs or party members like Samuel Tudor is absolutely the first thing you'd want to do. I also kind of imagine that if we were actually talking about it from a video game standpoint, then you might not necessarily meet Samuel Tudor, but Mm. you're going to have equipment and... Mm. Equipment has to have, or doesn't have to have, but equipment often has lore attached to it. So yeah. you can imagine the story or a version of the story of the Clementine to be present in when you like, you know, in the codex or whatever mm. of the video game or, the uh, item you know, description. It, in the item description. Yeah, exactly. So, mm. yeah, I definitely agree that his association referring to the Clementine by giving it his his wife's name and the two times that he actually brings it up as being part of his story it's quite an individual concept Mm -hmm. i think in terms of like it it, it's not uncommon for people to name their individual weapons and Mm. i can't help but think of okay i'm not gonna actually talk about adam baldwin but uh his character in firefly uh jane and how he has that enormous powerful rifle that he names vera or Mm. 
alternately, because we brought it up before, in Resident Evil, how there's a powerful handgun that's referred to as Matilda, which oh, is Matilda. <laughs> which is very specifically a reference, I think, to the professional with uh crap, I'm suddenly forgetting the actor's name. Um Jean Reno. Uh-huh. Uh yeah, exactly. So so but just the idea of what actually comes part and parcel with giving a killing weapon a woman's name. I'm not sure what that actually says about us as people. And yeah, for those of you that were following our recent news of the century, that sounds like an odd argument for me to make, considering how taken I was with a specific shotgun being named Cleo. Granted, in that case, it felt very specifically thematically appropriate, and those of you that have read that far will know what I'm talking about. But let's get back to the discussion at hand. Especially when I think about what Tudor associates the Clementine with and how he feels she would blushingly approve of his choice to name it after her. I find myself wondering if that is actually true. I don't really know how to feel about that kind of characterization, except that maybe it invokes some level of trust Mm. that you keep this thing by your side to protect yourself. And that therefore, yeah. Okay. I think that I'm in, like I like I would like to believe uh, Tudor when he says that like he knew his wife well enough to he likes to think that she would blushingly approve but mm-hmm. to me it's this that act which is probably like as you say trust in the thing that is keeping you alive mm-hmm. and also just maybe a way to kind of deal with the harsh realities of war and fighting for your life is to have the thing that you're using to kill other things and to somewhat like personify it and to personify it after something that is very dear to you or something Mm -hmm. that maybe reminds you of what you're fighting for what you want to protect or just like another example of that as you were talking something that came to mind was in aliens and how each Mm -hmm. of the marines and that were like have these rifles that is individually customized and mm-hmm. i think uh, cameron encouraged each of the actors playing them to go to town like just sort of doodling and doing whatever they wanted to all of their uh Equipment props and armor yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah and i think that it's probably that like on a superficial level it's sort of like that same part of our lizard brain that enjoys customizing our gear in a video game but on Mm -hmm. a sort of real world emotional level i think it is as you say building a trust between you and the thing that's keeping you alive and to also kind of reforge a sort of connection to your life outside of this this war I also don't mean to make it sound like women don't have a right to violence. There's mm-hmm. a long drawn out discussion about the roles of women in action movies that was written by Ian Danskin of Indian Studios, who I 
I'm constantly promoting his videos on various subjects just because they often speak to something very deep within me. But the idea of women having just as much right to violence as an expression in their goals as men do, as we associate violence as associated with men in media in general, just as mm. we associate it with them being soldiers in combat and everything like that, I feel like it's important to recognize that violence is not something that is somehow only endemic to men mm. and that anyone has a right to utilize it in the right way, especially mm. since men don't always do very well with that sort of thing. Violence is always something that needs to be carefully controlled to mm. a certain extent, and unfortunately, control is sometimes something that has been shown to be beyond certain kinds of men for the detriment of all. Mm. I am regrets to that. And if there's something I appreciate, it is that, at the very least, the Clementine is an expression of that control. Mm. It is a weapon that Tudor has come up with specifically in order to do better at protecting the wielder and protecting others from the danger that's that the right. wielder presents. Yes. Mm. And I think that's kind of probably the part of it that is that it's not about building something that is better at killing. It's about doing uh, building something that can still kill the your opponent, but is more suited to protecting yourself. It's kind of a little bit like the line that I was referring to back when we were doing News of the Century Panther Soul, uh, where Colonush was talking with Beatrix about the difference between a sword and a shield. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Oh, I love that bit. Yeah, yeah, that's a great line. Season, right. I, I've lost count at this point, 10, 11 of uh, News of the Century, not News of the Century, of uh, Through the Window, can't come soon enough. Well, it's, you say soon enough, but, like, Steamfort well, is going to take so long, so right. it, long to cover. <laughs> Greg, you're absolutely right. That season of Through the Window can't come soon. <laughs> it can't come soon enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I am, a, right. I am having fun talking about Tudor. He's, he is an injection of a bit of fun in yeah. this story, I think. Exactly so. Speaking Gen of paragons... Well, okay, so yes. I, I was going to say that General Curtis is also an injection of fun, not in this book. But uh, I feel like in later portrayals in New Century, I just sort of smile whenever Curtis takes the stage. Mm. Um, and maybe it's part of the fact that I specifically associate him with that one actor whose name is currently escaping me. This is weird because I just Googled because I was curious if Nathaniel Curtis is indeed a like real historical figure. And when I Googled it, uh, Nathaniel Curtis did come up, but it's an actor, of, it seems. So, like, 
for a moment I was wondering if you were going to go, oh, that actor whose name I can't, that is escaping me. I was going to say, is it Nathaniel Curtis? <laughs> no, no. Uh. Um, no, the, the face that always comes to mind in part due to the artwork done by uh, Antonio Torreson is Sam Elliott, who people would know better uh, as the yeah. stranger in The Big Lebowski, as well as the role that likely most people know him for, Virgil Earp in Tombstone, brother of Morgan and Wyatt Earp, played by Bill Paxton and Kurt Russell, respectively. He's also been in a number of westerns over the years, which is part of the reason he naturally fits into the world new century. Although on top of that, he was also General Ross in Ang Lee's Hulk movie, and Brigadier General John Buford in Gettysburg. So he's got a number of qualifications for fitting well into the role of General Curtis. He just has this quality about him with his big handlebar mustache and his sometimes humorous way of talking and sort of smiling through his mustache that hmm. just just sort of puts a smile on my face as well, hmm. even when he's being perfectly serious like he is in his account in Cartographer's Handbook. Mm. And I think that his name of Curtis is quite appropriate because I think that his account is very much about being like Kurt and just <laughs> like, <laughs> just sort of not really bullshitting really. No. And his account is a bridge between the last national conflict that America would have faced and this new one that they faced with the Wendigo. Mm -hmm. It, hopefully provides a first-hand account of someone who has experienced both wars and is in a position where like they were on the front lines but they also had the perspective to oversee the conflict as a whole and from that he's concluded that all men are connected by their yearning for home which is mm. very much what the fight against the wendigo is about in the same way that thomas arlington says that for the black population, the while the American Civil War had multiple factors at play for them and for what a lot of people looking back on the war historically, the liberation of the black population, liberation of slaves was very much what the war was about. Mm -hmm. And for the war against the Wendigo, that is what it is very much about. It is a return to a home. It is up to debate, and that will persist throughout the new century, what that home that we hopefully want to return to really even is or what it should look like. But Curtis is kind of trying to focus on the idea that like, we don't want to necessarily be involved in this killing each other or killing just on a fundamental basis, but we very much are unified in that desire to return home. Not to get too far off topic, but the idea of returning home, as well as an argument of what that return should look like, brings to mind the MCU, which is oddly prescient, considering this book was written five years before Infinity War, which would lead to Endgame and the recent TV shows outlining the events after the snap and the blip, respectively. School of Movies has already done some great podcasts on WandaVision and The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, one of which I participated in. 
and I highly recommend both the shows themselves and the conversations in the resulting podcasts. He also shows that we must readjust our way of thinking until this point in time, because war and engagement with the enemy, like, yes, but also arguably for how we conduct our lives in general moving forward. In general, he... Well... <laughs> in general? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, 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 was, I was taken by my uh, non-deliberate use of that word myself. <laughs> There's I, a reason we, why. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say we've made a pun out of his surname Curtis, and a pun out of him being a general. Now we just need to find a way to work Nathaniel into a joke. Make a reference to Nathaniel Hawthorne? I don't know. Um, <laughs> not not like. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, I could go off on the fact that Nathaniel Hawthorne basically wrote a book to get Franklin Pierce the 14th U.S. president, into the White House. His term really sucked and brought the uh, various states closer to the brink of civil war. But that doesn't feel like a useful uh, tension to go on. So let's... Well, it's there. So, you know, <laughs> it's it's up to you whether we include it or not. Maybe yeah, it'll exactly. be in the final version, maybe in an outtakes. Who knows? We like to keep people guessing, including ourselves. How influential Hawthorne's book was to Pierce's presidential campaign needs citation. And one should also take a grain of salt from the fact that I learned this story from comedic actor Robert Wall, who was doing an HBO show under the auspices of teaching a variant history class to some college students. But I'll include some links in the show notes, just in case you're curious. At the very least, I encourage any piece of media that tells us to question either our natural assumptions or what we are taught. It's very true. Also, associating Nathaniel Curtis with Nathaniel Hawthorne just doesn't feel like we like Nathaniel Curtis. I don't know if I have feelings about Nathaniel Hawthorne, except for the fact that, you know, he wrote The Scarlet Letter. Do we like that as a book? I know that I certainly had to read it as being uh, part of my English class and everything like that, but... I don't know what point I'm trying to make here. Now now I'm doing the Toby thing of just going off on weird tangents and not really understanding hey, what I'm I saying anymore. I resemble that remark. <laughs> the point that I was trying to make back when I was dovetailing off of what you said was primarily that I definitely respect Curtis's character. And mm. I think that he is a good orator in general. And that, that is true whether we're talking about the Hamburg or we're talking about some of his later appearances in New Century. And I wonder to myself a little bit the road not taken about what it would have been like if his had been the voice of the handbook as opposed to Thomas Arlington. They may have had more success. I, I think that, put it this way, I think that for the characters we are following, Thomas was the perfect individual and his version of the handbook inspired them in the way they needed to be inspired. I think for the state of America and the unconvinced voices that could potentially have been swayed, perhaps Nathaniel Curtis would have been the more stable bet. Yeah. 
And that's going to be a further conversation that we're going to have as this subtext becomes text in Arlington itself. Although in our final handbook episode, we are going to have a more drawn-out conversation about what it means overall to have had Thomas's voice be the driving narrative, and in addition, the potential danger in both reaching out to people with potentially more problematic mindsets, as well as the effect of driving them away. Overall takeaways from his account in the handbook is that he is a person that is worthy of respect. He is someone, when you hear his words, when you see how he comports himself, and when he expresses his thoughts to others, you want to listen. You Mm -hmm. want to hear more from him. And I don't necessarily disagree that the same can be true of Thomas himself, but they're speaking with two different kinds of voices Mm -hmm. overall. And as alluded to before, it's not hard to see how Curtis arose to the position that he is in because being a general is as much about knowing the whys and wherefores of being a good battle tactician, but also good at being a leader of men and the voice you have to speak with and the carriage that you have to bring with yourself so that soldiers are bolstered by the man that is leading them into battle. Mm-hmm. But I should say by the person that is leading them into battle, but that the that, pattern that's has come... tended at this point in the story's history to be a man leading people into battle. Yep. And mm. but by the same token, we are going to see some different examples coming oh, yes. down the road and we're happy about that. Absolutely. So, this, this is meant to be a turning point in history. That is the point, and mm-hmm. not a moment too soon, really. Um, exactly so, yeah. so. Section 9 has four stories of the new modern era. Shirley talks about loss and how she tries to make peace with that loss through her religion. Considine talks about just how, because the Wendigo are the bigger threat, that there are many other things that pose just as great a danger to life and limb. Blaine talks about how being a cartographer involves complex choices and that the greater imperative of keeping the human race alive means being willing to embrace that complexity. Mm-hmm. And finally, Annie herself talks about how even among this desolate and difficult present, that there are signs of people still managing to cope and thrive. How do these stories meld into a cohesive whole, and how do they match with the handbook itself? That's pretty much the nail on the head for each of them individually, The like how you summed it up. I guess the way they come together is that they are each offering a perspective on how to carry on living in this new world and how not to give in to the overwhelming despair of things. Starting with Chorley, she refers to this when she brings up people who have laid down and would never wake, so hopeless was their future. Tabitha directly applies this to having her faith tested, and while she is unable to offer an explanation as to what end this test is being done for, she concludes that her work brings happiness and 
peace to the people who have resettled in the areas that she and her colleagues have cleared, including children born in the Wendigo years, who mm. are lives that possibly would only exist because of what has transpired since the time of great change. The new life her work gives way to brings her one step closer to passing his test, in her own words. So while she doesn't fully comprehend the grander picture of what this test is or what its destination is, she nevertheless notes each step forward and takes comfort from them. These signs that she is indeed spreading the positive change that her faith compels her to put out there into the world. Her story takes on a new, not necessarily level of meaning, but after our interview with Maureen um, and talking about what she had to draw on in order to vocalize Tabitha's story and the fact that these were aspects that were not endemic to Maureen herself, that she had to draw upon the experiences of others mm. to bring a genuineness to talking about things in relation to faith. Mm. Even if I have issues in regards to faith as a whole, and by this I mean specifically faith in the divine, and the Christian faith in particular, it doesn't mean that I can't respect someone that manages to channel their faith in such a way that it has an overall positive outcome for others. Mm. That, that is the overall ideal for the use of religion, is to use it to bring about positivity. Mm. That that is the ideal. Yeah, that's what the this. point should be, right? Like that's it's, what it should originally have been for. But it's been issue... it's been misused so exactly. often in ancient mm. history and in recent history and in mm. today history. And mm. that's what always has religion sort of leave a bad taste in my mouth. But mm those bad feelings do not extend to someone of Tabitha's character. No. And I think it's really all in how individual people sell it, whether it's part of the text of Tabitha Chorley mm. or as Maya related part of the subtext of Catherine Holloway. Yeah. And not even like how they, are selling it because it's not like for characters like this it's not necessarily that they're trying to convert people yeah it's, it's, it's more not that evangelical no. yeah it's it's for their own purposes really and i think you used the word channeling mm -hmm. before and that's what come it comes across to is that they have a role that they are throwing themselves into and they would use that aspect of themselves that they draw strength from or like can draw strength from to drive them forward or to maybe see things in a way that helps them to kind of continue forward and not, as Tabitha says, just get crushed under the weight of it all. It's an interesting contrast to Annie. So go on mm. and say what your thoughts were on Annie's story. In a lot of ways, Annie is very similar to Tabitha. Like, 
even now she's being characterized in public texts as a shining source of optimism, emphasizing the good that her work does, much like Tabitha. And even though her faith or like religion doesn't really come into Annie's account, they are very much striving to achieve a similar thing, that is to focus on what this is for. And while she doesn't connect her words to that, she does touch on the same idea of considering the broader trials America's faced and will be confronted with in the future, showing determination to do so with hearts intact. Being able to compare and contrast the hope of those with faith and mm. the hope of those where faith in the divine doesn't necessarily factor into it. It is a general hope. It is a mm. hope for people. It is a hope for the situation. It is non-denominational, mm. and it is, as you say, based out of a, a, a place of optimism, even if that optimism is potentially part of Annie's persona, so to speak, mm. that she is putting on a face for other people, potentially. They say a good man can't get elected president. I don't believe that, do you? And you think I'm that man? Yes. Doesn't it matter that I'm not as sure? Ah. Act as if ye have faith, and faith shall be given to you. Put another way, fake it till you make it. Mm. She's, it's something she's very good at. Yeah. inspiring hope in others and that's that was a central part of her characterization in secret rooms and it's definitely here in the handbook as well yeah um this is very it, much the public version of annie we are seeing mm -hmm. yeah and i just generally have a greater appreciation for that because the idea that morality and decency and hope are purely the province of the religious is an idea that mm. just strikes me as being very wrong. I am not amoral because I am agnostic any more than someone that purports to be a Christian is above reproach. And I just have a natural tendency to trust more the hope that comes from someone that just has strong empathy as opposed to strong faith, I guess you mm. could say. The drive to do good isn't twinned with the idea of being God-fearing, which is... God-fearing God is a very good word to use in this case, mm. because the idea that we are only good because we fear God doesn't really say nice things about the human race, unfortunately. No, and I like as much as like it's directed by a piece of shit, and as much as there are other better films in the same series, I do nevertheless have always liked in the first X-Men film, mm -hmm. the scene with Ian McKellen where he is confronting very much a right-wing uh, politician who he calls out and says are you a god-fearing man senator that's such a strange phrase i've always thought of god as a teacher as a bringer of light wisdom and understanding 
You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Me and my kind. The Brotherhood of Mutants. So I always like that bit because it mm. kind of gets to the heart of like how that term has ever sat right with me because the whole point is that like no, this like you shouldn't be doing this because your faith is saying like you will be punished if you don't do this. You should be doing this because it's the right thing to do. And that's I think like when faith is sort of twinned with like a sort of seeing that the imperative is good and godly in and of itself, that's where I think it's channeled into a much more constructive, positive like form of it, rather than the tenuous position of doing it because of a fear of retribution if you don't do it. And these words hit differently in the day after my final recording with Toby on the handbook, where we specifically get into the idea of the handbook encouraging people to join with the RSA because it's the right thing to do, but the implicit or explicit punishment if you don't do so. But once more, we get ahead of ourselves. On top of all of that, I understand that the, you're referring to that one scene from X-Men 2000. 2000? 2000! Um, and therefore it coming from a difficult place because it was fucking Singer directing it. But maybe you can instead take comfort from the fact that the screenplay itself, and therefore potentially the dialogue, was written by David Hayter. And therefore we're bringing it back to Solid Snake! Yeah! No! <laughs> someday you go through the rain and someday you'll feed on a tree frog david hater <laughs> i'm sorry i actually had to look this up because i was thinking I to myself well this, brian yeah. singer didn't actually write x-men 2000 no. Who did write it? Oh, wait a second. I recognize that name. Hey! No, but, um, yeah. I, I, I do like Annie and Tabitha being sort of, like, there's a lot of overlap, but there's also little differences, which mm -hmm. I think speaks to the idea that many people are coming together to enact positive change. And everyone's going to have different sort of reasons or different ways of reflecting on that but like to see that nevertheless there is a lot of similarity in the sort of universal good that they are trying to bring about mm. is very uplifting and I think that's why it comes as late in the book as it does because it's trying to leave you in that feeling of uplifted and hope for the future and it is important to highlight the differences as well mm. um, because even if unity is an important factor in what Thomas is trying to bring about, mm. it's the unity that can come with differing points of view that can still work together. Unity without conformity. Yes, exactly so. Exactly mm. so. Or as Star Trek would put it, IDIC, infinite diversity and infinite combination. That's always been my uh, preference in terms of the like sort of utopia or the best civilization to strive towards because mm. I've mentioned my, I think at one point or another somewhere, my distaste for 
classic utopia texts where the conclusion was very much that, oh, we have all accepted that this is the way of doing things and no one disagrees on that whatsoever. And to me, mm. like, I think that's bullshit because mm. this is a utopia built on zero diversity and mm -hmm. that's not what we should be striving for. It's about accepting and celebrating diversity within reasonable things. Of course, the adage of we should, as much as it might sound like a paradox, like we should not tolerate the intolerant, mm -hmm. like that's very much still there. But yeah, that's to go back to your point, that is exactly what you get from these characters is that their goals do overlap, but their identities maintain. Mm. Also, because I always, I never miss a chance to bring it up. One of the things that comes to mind is the ending of one of the early episodes of Babylon 5, where the various alien races are sharing the dominant form of belief and rituals that are endemic to their particular culture. When the representative of Earth is like, okay, we're going to show you how things are done on Earth, what our dominant form of belief is, what it comes down to is him introducing dozens of people, each with their own individual faith, some of them religious, some of them more just along the lines of a philosophy that people embody, and just meeting with these people one by one, showing that the strength of Earth comes from that diversity rather than conformity. Mm. Greg? Yeah? Are the last couple of episodes your veiled attempt to get me into Babylon 5? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Toby. Narrows eyes. <laughs> you're watching me, I can tell. Um, I'm staring very intensely at the Skype window right now. <laughs> well, let's get back to New Century. Um, right. Your thoughts on Considine. I, I forget, is it Considine or Considine? Either way. Um, There's no T in there, so I was thought it was supposed to be pronounced Considine, although... Uh, I not Considine, I... uh, like Considine. Like, yeah. Yeah. Either also, way. Also, I like... haven't re-listened to his account recently. I've only reread it, so I don't mm. know how he pronounces it. Yeah. So, of course, future editor Greg may have to correct this. As it turns out... The pronunciation is Considine, the corporal's voice in a distinct southern drawl of its own. In the process of confirming the pronunciation, I was reacquainted with some of the beautiful music that Alex picked out for the handbook. And in the process of trying to get proper attribution for what piece it was, I found out that depending on what version of the handbook you are listening to, it can be different music. One of these days, Toby and I will do a show on the music of New Century, but I'll need to properly prepare myself for that. In the meantime, enjoy this tiny clip from the piece Moment 2 by Mark Shans, from the version available on Bandcamp. This piece in particular makes me think of Iguazu, the guitar piece I keep bringing up from Deadwood. So Considine may seem like an outlier to my theory that like these characters are connected in that they are offering means of carrying on, not letting the 
sheer despair like overwhelm you because his account is twinned with Kaufman's in that he's highlighting the many dangers that need to be considered out there, not just the Wendigo. You know, he says that the weather, wildlife and sickness can kill you with just as much certainty as Kaufman shows when he states that without water in just a few days, you are done. In some ways, you would think like this section is lamenting that you know, what you think, the the Wendigo are our only problems out there? Brother, there are like a dozen things that I can tell you in like just off the top of my head that will also kill you. Nevertheless, I think that this section still feels cohesive with the others in this chapter or section that reflect on despair and what that can do to you. When listing the elements, Considine lists despair right alongside the cold rain and the burning sun as just fundamental elements that if not properly prepared for and guarded against are more inescapable dangers than the wendigo his is a practical response to the problem and it feels like talking with someone whose disposition tends towards identifying individual problems that can have something practical done about them in order to take back some level of control the wendigo may feel like an undefeatable problem but to him, there are much more unassailable dangers to mankind that have always been there, and we must do our best to prepare against them, same as we always have done. Two thoughts. Yeah. Primarily that a lot of the stuff that he's talking about, those issues can be better guarded against and Mm -hmm. dealt with by people working together than people Mm. trying to survive alone. And so, therefore, that's a step towards encouraging people to become a part of the greater whole within the RSA. But on top of that, keep in mind that part of Tabitha's account is discussing the dangers of despair. Mm. Like, Annie gets into it a lot more when she's having her conversation with James in secret rooms when she talks about how fragile we are. Mm. But Tabitha's story is a precursor to that in a way when relating how despair can kill us just as easily as any Wendigo, so to speak. So Mm. there is definitely a running theme present on both the darker aspect of what Considine is trying to say as well as the idea of this is something you have to be careful about, but mm. by relating this information to you, it's a way of bringing you into the fold. It's a way mm. of sharing information yeah. and making us all stronger by saying, hey, stuff you need to watch out for, apart from merely defending yourself from the obvious thing about to kill you. Yeah. Yeah as you were talking, something that came clear is that these chapters are linked not only in their response to the despair of the last few years with the Wendigo, but that they're also linked in how coming together can help us in overcoming that. In Annie's story and Tabitha, they are very much looking at like how working together has yielded so much and that there are more communities that are being built up every day and i guess that like uh, 
Constantine is basically like warning you against that sort of isolation, that being just sort of out there, like dying of exposure or any number of other elemental dangers is something that you want to take every precaution to avoid. And as you mentioned, that that's something that can be guarded against through community and the resources that we build up to finally link into that in terms of another story that looks at not just responding to situations that elicit despair, but also to the benefits of building community and unity between the wider American, well, community, which is Blaine's story. Mm -hmm. As we discussed in the first show we did for cartographers, Blaine is an example of someone being confronted with conceptually one of the very worst moral situations to find oneself in. And they're still able to find a solution that leads to some good being done for the world. Her spring that she has with each step, she takes as a result of not having to lose it because of the help of one of the inhabitants of that town she did not decide to execute. That's a sign that our better urges will help us with each step forward. Because, as I said, it was something that was completely like harrowing to her and people like her, but nevertheless they were able to bring some way of taking even the most like horrific circumstances and literally bring some sort of healing into the situation. And in terms of community, by not eradicating the people of that town who had done this terrible thing, there was more people on hand to help with other people. So it means that people like Blaine are able to yield the benefits of that fostering relationships between different communities. It's a little bit of a beta build in regards to Abigail's letter experience with Carl. Absolutely it is, yes. I, I, I kind of like love being able to fit together all of these little connections in terms of like, oh yeah, so we can see that the cartographer's handbook being that it was actually the first book that Alex ever wrote mm. is very much a statement of principle for ideas that he would expand on in later books. It's the revision material before you have the practical exam in secret rooms, essentially, because these are new recruits who have been presented with the handbook and they're thrown into the deep end in mm. a number of situations, like whether it's a firefight with bandits, a community that is split on whether they want to join the reunified states, and even being under siege by Wendigos. It's all putting into practice what is being taught in cartographers. It is something that does work if you were to sort of have it preceding secret rooms, but I think it also has different benefits that come into play from reading it just before you go into Arlington, considering mm -hmm. that a lot of the editing decisions and contributors to the handbook are very much a point of focus. As you said, their subtext made text in mm -hmm. Arlington. Exactly so. Uh, another piece of information that I'm just going to sort of go forward with a little bit here, 
because mm-hmm. it is a talking point inside Arlington, but is not necessarily something that we're going to focus on over much when we talk about Arlington, is the revelation that Harriet Blaine is actually named after Harriet Beecher Stowe, noted abolitionist and author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Mm. Well, I don't necessarily know a whole lot of the context surrounding Uncle Tom's Cabin, except, of course, for the later term about referring to a, uh, what's the word, a subservient black man as a Tom Specifically um, an Uncle Tom, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, in terms of the idea of Harriet Beecher Stowe being someone that was working against the cause of slavery, it was working to free people, mm. I would like to think that that being a part of the subtext and therefore Alex drawing attention to it as a part of the text of Arlington is in fact important to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, at the very least, in terms of the evolving conversations and how they reflect on the characters of the story, so to speak, mm. that better things have to be built off of smaller things, even if those smaller things are imperfect in and of themselves. Mm. And that Harriet Blaine's story is a reflection of that. Trying to unpack why Uncle Tom's Cabin is problematic is far beyond the remit of this podcast, but I did include a link in the show notes for some details from a 2008 NPR interview with an accredited folklorist, Patricia Turner. I would encourage finding more such details, particularly from black voices. But based on the few facts I learned about the book from research, It was considered the first best-selling novel, competing with the Bible for most copies sold, and significantly helped advance the cause of abolitionism, laying the groundwork for the North being willing to fight with the South over slavery. It may be full of extremely harmful stereotypes, and according to Turner, later stage depictions of the story made changes that were even worse. But I imagine that at the time, the fact that it did the work to encourage progress flawed as it is, is something that made it more acceptable to even someone such as Thomas Arlington. Yeah, I, I actually don't think I have anything I want to add to that. I Like, when you sort of presented those two bits of information of a noted abolitionist, it's a, oh yeah, uh, but sort of author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. <laughs> uh, it's one of those things which is such a mixed bag because it was written as an effort to kind of put forward the idea of humanizing black people but it has in a time since and i think like i don't feel particularly inclined to sort of argue against or defend this book it's sort of shown to be it's a sort of driving miss daisy sort of situation of like oh don't do a racism. Look, this one is a very friendly black person who is this still is very one of the subservient. Good ones. Yeah, oh, right. Yeah, like the the sort of term and it's it, like I feel uncomfortable saying this. So if it's something that like is 
that I ultimately decide like I'd rather like stricken than yeah we can but it's the friendly negro like mm-hmm. character type which is why like it's yeah no just that phrase alone speaks volumes of yeah no this is a sort of character type we should really steer far away from I said that I didn't have a lot to add but I guess I did um I always do why do I think otherwise don't don't worry about it there was a course during my English lit degree where I think I was looking at racial issues in literature and one week we looked at the book Uncle Tom's Cabin and then the next week we looked at a book a hundred years later that was very much showing the like disparity between the sort of intentions of Uncle Tom's Cabin and the legacy it had left behind and mm. how that character archetype is very much like something that is resented but that is a half remembered couple of weeks from years ago so yes I can't necessarily speak with authority other than it's a mixed bag and as you say the good intentions of someone who was an abolitionist at the time should not necessarily be the rigid sort of set of standards of this was once considered radical and liberal and it's not necessarily the case that that will always be true we have to evolve our standards of what is greater consideration and empathy for people and it shouldn't just be one book from ages ago because lest we forget joss whedon was once considered very feminist in his writings so you know everything in its proper context you don't want to make apologies for people and say well it he was incredibly progressive for his time. And I'm like, the important words in that sentence are for his time. I think time does move forward, helpful. and it also seems clear that regardless of what good an individual creator might have done at the time, if there was stuff going on in the background that was undoing whatever good they might have caused even if it was on more of a personal level then you can't really divorce one from the other you have to talk about it in context mm. and you have to you have to face the entire story and you have to do better as yeah. you say you have that's, to do better that's exactly it we have to always be striving to do better And this is spoken as someone that has made more than a few mistakes along the way to do better in regards to feminist issues and racial issues. My quote-unquote crimes are small. My sins forgivable. Born out of desire more to seek out the best in people and forgiving more than should be forgiven because I want to assume the best in others. But Toby and I are still privileged white men, and that means that we need to take the greatest care when discussing narratives that include black people, never mind real-world racial politics. Both will be relevant in Arlington. But for now, let us move on. Well, then let's continue on to the last two stories of the cartographers and their allies, Private Santos and Commander Mm -hmm. Wilson tell stories of places far beyond America. 
Mm-hmm. One is a story that shows that much of the rest of the world is in just as dire straits, yet offers a hope for the future in terms of Santos's own particular goals. And another is an intriguing mystery that hints at not simply the physical wider world, but a phenomenon that our readers know the significance of. Why are these stories present in the handbook? So going outside the handbook as a text with a specific purpose in the world of New Century, these stories are here to tantalize the audience, you know, us. The natural inclination for anyone getting into this series from here is to say, but wait, what about everywhere else? And while Thomas's comments are practical and right enough, I suppose, for the inhabitants of America, as readers, we nevertheless feel compelled to know how the rest of the world has coped in the years since the Wendigo first appeared. That tantalizing promise of someday showing us what might be going on elsewhere will finally come to pass later in Princess Thieves. But for now, it keeps us guessing. And of course, Commander Wilson's story is a mind-blowing moment for the reader who has just spent this whole time reading or listening to cartographers being introduced to this setting, which is a new frontier to explore and tell stories in, where the point of the book is very much like, here, here's the setting notes for this place. Like, think of all the possibilities of stories yet to be told. Only for the final chapter to say, oh, buddy, if you think this is the only fictional setting we're going to be exploring, you've got some surprises in store. I mean, heck, the final story is even being told to us by an explorer and a charismatic one at that. We're absolutely being encouraged and teased with the prospect of going on more adventures like what Wilson is preparing to do. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right in terms of Thomas framing it like, look, this is... Santos' story is saying, hey, it's shit everywhere, and that's why we need to look out for each other. There is nowhere else to go that is reliably safe or anything like that. But you're right that there is a dual narrative taking place where it tells us, the external readers, that there is stuff going outside the United States and that we will eventually potentially get more into it as Thomas's narrative implies overall, but that on a practical scale that they have to consider those parts beyond lost, basically. Mm. Whereas Commander Wilson's story is revealing of new mysteries yet to be uncovered. Mm. And, you know, we've had a chance to get into that a little bit already with the experience of Abigail and James in secret rooms and a little bit more of it will be gotten into in Arlington itself. Although that is very much more of a story of practicality overall than an exploration of the fantastic. Well, actually no, hold on a second. Okay. Scratch what I just said, because even though most of the text is talking about the potential future of the RSA and how they deal with threats close to home. To say that it involves no aspects of the supernatural is 
people are already going to be saying, what the hell are you talking about? Look <laughs> at the way Arlington begins. And I'm like, yes, but we haven't gotten there yet. And I'm trying not to spoil it for new readers. So I think we'll kind of leave it there and Look. for others to find out for themselves if there are new readers that are following along with us as being mm. their first involvement with New Century. Yeah. A lot of characters. I sure hope that the next one is one that can be wrapped up pretty quickly. Oh. <laughs> no, I think that this is, in fact, where we're going to end it for today because we would only have 15 minutes left, and that's not going to be enough time to talk about Thomas Arlington's story. So we we got some I mean, good stuff done today. a whole three-hour-long episode is clearly not going to be enough to talk about Thomas Arlington's story because he has a whole friggin' book dedicated to him. It's true. It's true. Mm. And there you have it, folks. We are one episode away from completing our exploration of the Cartographer's Handbook, which will dive into Thomas's past as revealed in the handbook, as well as our final thoughts on the novel as a whole. One little bit of bookkeeping is that we were listing off books that included some of the fantastical multiversal stories of New Century, and somehow didn't mention Tiger's Eye at all, which was rather silly of us, considering how much time we spent on it. However, it's also true that new readers won't know at all about where Tiger's Eye falls into the timeline of our story so far, and it isn't until Steamheart that that story is brought into the mix. For the most part, you can talk about Secret Rooms, The Handbook, and Arlington as one cohesive storyline because it follows many of the same characters, and Tiger's Eye is entirely separate, with Let Them Go as an early prologue to this world. But it does give some insight into not only a very different world, but one that appears to have its own magic as well. And these worlds will come together and be fleshed out more as we continue through Phase 1 and into Phase 2. As I write this, we're only a couple weeks away from the fifth book of Phase 2 to be released, which will be taking place in at least one world we have not seen yet. And here at Windor Incorporated, we are very excited for that. But for now, let's close out this episode properly. Because the final episode is likely to be extra long, I'm going to add the outtakes we've already collected to the end of this one, to reduce the work to get 22D into shape. So look forward to those at the end of our song today. For this song, I called in on Maureen for help coming up with something. I had gotten about halfway through Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and there was a plot twist that made me want to take a break. I wanted something hopeful for this episode, not just due to what I had been watching, but also thanks to the fact that we are focusing on stories like Tabitha's and Annie's, and so together we put together a list. Some of those will show up in Arlington, because they fit better there, but one stood out as being exactly the right tone, not to mention it was written and sung by a black voice. I may well have first heard the cover done by the R&B group Club Nouveau in 1987, but nothing can beat the original from 1973. It's a song Maureen once learned to play on piano, and the lyrics would definitely have resonance in terms of our growing relationship. Until next time, this is Bill Withers with Lean On Me. 
Here, Toby and I were talking about the logo that I'd come up with for Through the Wind Door, even before we had recorded a single discussion. And a very nice uh, logo it is. <laughs> that was that was one of the first things we came up with, as I recall. Um, yeah, you, you so... knocked it out of the park with that. Oh, I've always liked the particular set of colors we've done for that, and also the unique variants we've had on some of the episodes, uh, <laughs> particularly uh, Stone Spring. That was great. Um, um but yeah that was uh 
I came up with that before. I, I specifically used that back when we were doing our interview with Loretta. Mm-hmm. Because I think it was Pride Month at that point. And so therefore that was literally supposed to be the Pride Month version of our logo, so to speak. Mm. Also also dovetailing a little bit with sparkly Pinkie Pie personality and everything like that. Yeah, that 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 was the that was the impetus behind the creation of the far more colorful logo and everything like that. I still have all of the original artwork saved, so in theory I could always make more, but um through the pride door. <laughs> but I haven't come up with any new ideas in that regard yet. It's basically just an application on my phone that mm-hmm. is meant to take existing photographs or artwork and therefore add things to it like text or overlays or Filters. different color scheme. Fil- yeah, as Filters is the word that I was looking for, yes. Filters, mm. overlays, put different colors in there, put stickers on, using sort of like warping features, which is how I took what was initially a very deliberate photograph of like being inside a cave and having the light casting down through it in that way that made it look like I was trying to depict a wind door specifically. Mm. But when I was playing around with those images in particular... What I was trying to do is come up with a way to make it look more not just uh, um, fantastical and colorful, but a way to sort of like what I ended up. I don't remember what I ended up using now, but I, as I said, I was playing around with ways that changed the photorealism of the photo was mm-hmm. like put into sort of a different context like mm. watercolor or stuff like that. They basically Collage, just almost. Yeah, exactly. And mm. I worked with that until I had something that I enjoyed and then basically used that basic framework and there was a separate thing that I could switch on to make a four color quad tick and then that's what I put the text on top of. And I was like playing around with that for a couple of hours before I had a couple different themes that i liked at which point i put it out i think it was on Discord at that point in order mm. to get feedback um to see what people thought looked good and everything like that so yeah i i am not that kind of artist by trade but that was an application that i could use that had functionality already built in that i was basically just tweaking the settings of well, i have i have some experience with that kind of thing because i've had to design what's the word, Uh, um, business cards for people before, as well as do a little bit of layout as a part of the work that I did for Kinko's and other companies that involve us adjusting other people's product so that it looks like more readable or proper or anything like that. So I have some experience with that, but I'm not an artist by trade, so to speak. The only other thing that I've ever used this app in order to create are some of the many memes that you've seen on (laughs) Discord, usually centering around either New Century or um, whatever Alex or Sharon were saying on School of Movies, just putting that... A worthy use of resources, I might add. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, what's coming through as a result of this conversation is that I have no idea what function they would serve, but I know that they are a necessity is we need through the window business cards. Just <laughs> hi, fan podcaster at your service. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this was a snippet of a conversation relating to streaming services for countries that are not the U.S., on, I'm on the afraid US these days, Greg, you have to say UK and EU. They are not overlapping. Yeah. Can we talk about the monster Wendigos, please? It's a yes. relief. <laughs> yeah, why don't we do that? Um, yep. This is as good a place to stop as any, since the very next topic at hand was going to be revisiting the story of Weirdwood. I don't believe it. I did it again. Ah, um, <laughs> uh, well, this is one of the last times I'm going to be able to mispronounce Weirdwood, so why the hell not? And now for a little meta-humor about the editing process. So, uh, I, I wasn't sure if uh, at that point you should uh, finish off what you were saying, if you had any more, or I could say my thing. So No, go ahead and say your thing. I, don't ha I didn't have anything, I didn't more. have any immediate response planned uh, other than what I'd already said, so uh, do go on. Okay, well, uh, future Greg, you can use this and make it seem like I just flowed into this with no awkwardness whatsoever, but then get your revenge by putting this in the outtakes. So, <laughs> damn you, future Greg! <laughs> okay, I have a request in the edit of this. Uh -huh. Could, uh -huh. like, when you bring that up, could you put in the little sound effect of the bleh, like, exclamation mark? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, I will absolutely do this thing for you. <laughs> Thank yes, you. sir. Thank you. Um... <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. <laughs> Why did I ever think that I was going to be able to get this story done in two Skype sessions of two hours? I, I must have been out of my mind. I think we've only got one more like Skype session left, and then we really will have wrapped this up. Right, but my point is, is that means we've done six Skype sessions total. Yeah, yeah. I remember when we were like, oh, Cartographer's Handbook doesn't have as much meat to it as the other books. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, boy. <laughs> oh, you sweet summer child. Uh, yeah. I was sure naive of us three yeah, months ago. I, ex I don't exactly know when we started. So. <laughs> All right. 84 well. years ago. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was 2020. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was a very long time. Well, we didn't it, record it, a sign-off. No, we didn't record a sign-off because this is not going to be the... Like, I don't know if you've noticed necessarily, but um, I tend to save the actual sign-off for the final episode of whatever arc that we're actually doing. Mm. And so therefore, I have no problem just ending it on a concise, coherent thought as opposed to uh, doing the regular sign-off that we have done in the past. Oh, Greg, Just if you're wait. waiting for concise, coherent thoughts, I have, must apologize, because I'm sure I keep you waiting. <laughs> it's perfectly okay. But yeah, no, uh, we, I think we had a sign-off after the end of Manifesto. We'll have another one after the end of Dramatis Personae. 
and that's it. We don't necessarily need to have one for the end of each individual um, segment of our talking points. Now that you mention it, I'm starting to see it. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, I shan't keep you any longer. This has been a great session. I really enjoyed this. Absolutely. Absolutely.